Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Uh, just a quick plug, uh, if you're not connected with uh, Fall Retreat and you're new and you're like, should I go? I don't know anybody. Is that really a good idea? That's actually why we do the Fall Retreat is so that you can know everybody. Uh, we're a network of neighborhood churches. And so there are four City on a Hill churches around the Boston area. And so we're going to ascend to New Hampshire with the 300 finest City on a Hill uh, people. If you're not going, you're still fine too. You know, I love you. But uh, we're going to go to New Hampshire. And it's a great time if you don't know anybody for you to go. Uh, also, the finances are a challenge. Our church has scholarships, and we also have a discount code for newcomers. And you longcomers, shortcomers, longcomers, I don't know, uh, you don't get a discount, but you get love. And we're glad that you come as well. But if you're a guest, really consider uh, coming. It's one of the best ways for you to get connected uh, to the life of our church, meet new people, and just really retreat and watch uh, just beautiful New Hampshire uh, fall. It's, a, it's an excellent season. Uh, if you've not been to fall in New England, it's beautiful. Hampshire, join us. Um, okay, uh, well, uh, we are entering into week four of our uh, teaching on Genesis. It's the very first book of the Bible. And Genesis, as we've been learning, is all about origin stories. And we're learning something about our story in light of God's story. And so, so far, we've seen God tell us this really beautiful and poetic retelling of the creation events found in chapter one. And in it, we see him design with beauty, Right? and nuance. We see him create with power and purpose. And on day six of creation, God creates what? This grand masterpiece. It's his magnum opus. And what is that? It's humanity. It's you. It's me. He creates on the sixth day. Or as verse uh, uh, 26 last week said, God creates a people made in his image after God's likeness. And so last week we covered part one of what it means to be made in God's image and God's likeness. And so this week is part two of that message. And I think we're going to have like part three and part four, just how the text is kind of working out. But we're really unpacking what does it mean to be made in God's image and his likeness? What's that mean for your daily life? What's that mean for your relationships? Why is it so significant that you and I bear part of God's character in his heart in the world? So now as we jump in the passage, guys, I want to share that I love the way that this passage today begins. Uh, the author is Moses, and he's writing to the Israelite people to share with them something about God. And I love how he starts out. He uses an introductory poem. It's sort of like if you've seen Star Wars, how Star Wars begins its movie, like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Like this is how he begins is this kind of poem to start this section. So Moses begins in verse four by saying this, these are the generations. That's a long, long time ago is what's happening here. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God had made the earth and the heavens. That's the poem. It's the introduction to this. Now I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how he flips the phrase heavens and the earth in line two, and he flips it to earth and the heavens in line three. He's being symmetrical here. He's being poetic in how he's writing this. He's almost, guys, even taking sort of a jab at our silly age of the earth debates 
by giving us actually both sides of the debate in the same poem. Like, did you see that there? He says in verse four, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And all those are old earth creation. It says, aha, I told you. It's billions of years. It's millions of years. He says, generations for creations to be established. But then he flips it. He flips it in the last line of the poem. Check it out. He says, in the day that the Lord God had made the earth and the heavens. And this time he's giving young earthers some proof that maybe he did create everything in a literal six hour day or six, uh, six literal days. Again, it's like Moses is winking at us or pulling at the legs of both old earthers thinking the earth is billions of years or young earthers thinking it's only maybe 10,000 years or so and it maybe just looks old. He's pulling out our legs, trying to remind us through this poem that it's not really about how of creation, but it's really all about the why of creation that's important. He's saying what's really important is that God is the eternal, triune, sovereign creator of all matter, time, and space. Like that's what you're trying to get from this passage. That's the, what is significant. He's not trying to help you figure out how many days it was created. So he's like, here's the generations. And also here's the day. And you're like, which one is it? And Moses is like, it's not the point. He's like, the point is that you'll see that God is the creator and he's the eternal sovereign God over all time, space, and matter. And since he's the designer of all things, he has a design for how all things should operate, including me, including you. And that's what this week is about. God showing us how we were designed. And so today we'll see just quick three things. Number one, we'll see we were created for a personal relationship with God. Number two, we were designed for good works. Number three, we were designed to flourish as we follow God's word. Now, a little background here. Uh, when you were a kid, did you guys remember playing with something called a kaleidoscope? Uh, remember what I'm talking about, kaleidoscope? I think we've got a picture here for you. Uh, mine didn't look like that, by the way. We had to make them out of like toilet paper things or whatever. Mine weren't like that, that cool as a kid. Uh, but if you like, like, you know, had a family that had maybe a little cash, or you bought like nice ones or your school gave you one. But how, here's how the kaleidoscope worked, right? You remember this. You'd pick it up and you'd face it towards the light, right? You look through it and then you'd slowly begin to spin it and you would see different colors and shapes and designs. You'd be looking the same direction, but you'd be shifting it a bit. And you, because of that, you'd be seeing different things. You'd see how the different color mirrors and rocks inside sort of bounce off and reflect the light. It would alter what you saw when you shifted it. Again, you'd be looking at the light the whole time, but when you turned it, it came at the light at a different angle and you saw something different. And that's what's happening here with Genesis chapter 2 versus Genesis chapter 1. What Moses is doing in Genesis 2 is called the kaleidoscopic and recursive way of telling a story. This is what Peter Gentry, the professor of Old Testament scripture, tells us. Kaleidoscopic means that Moses is looking at the same creation story in chapter 2 as he is in 1, but he's coming at it in a different angle. He's turning the kaleidoscope and we're seeing a different angle of the same story, the same picture, but we're seeing maybe it from a different perspective. Recursive means that he's backing up out of Genesis 1, but he's walking through the creation course. It's a recourse. He's going through it again, but again, from a different angle, the kaleidoscopic recursive way of telling a story. By the way, you guys know this in even your friend groups. When you guys went to the same concert together or the same event, 
one person shares a story this way, and then another person shares a story this way, and then the other person's like, oh yeah, well, what about this? Are they all telling the same story? Yes. But is it from a different point of view? Yes. To emphasize different things that are important to them. And so that's what Moses is doing. In chapter one, Moses is telling us a very uh, poetic and artistic way of showing God's power and his might. And then in chapter two, we're learning a more literal way of what is happening and we're zooming in to humanity. Through Moses, we're seeing a different angle of what's beautiful and what's true and what's a historical real event. He's trying to show us that he is the designer and he's showing us that we're beautifully designed for something. So Moses, he turns the kaleidoscope in verse five and he begins to restart the story that he just told us in chapter one. He turns the kaleidoscope and he says this, verse five. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, that's his once upon a time. When no bush was yet in the field in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, then he's gonna add some commentary here in verse six. And every good storyteller adds some details and some commentary. So he says, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land yet. And there was no man to work the ground. And so a mist was going up from the land. It's kind of like it was raining from the bottom. Um, it was, a mist was going up from the land and it was watering the whole face of the ground. Then verse seven says, then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground. Now, did you notice the turn of the kaleidoscope there? Do you see the different perspective that's being brought out than chapter one? Now, chapter one, we have this artistic description of the creative narrative, don't we? Where God uh, creates by speaking, creation into existence. It's very poetic and artistic. We see that on the third day, God creates the bushes and the plants. And then on the sixth day, God creates mankind. But notice the difference in chapter two. We see those flip-flopped. We see that there's no bushes in the field and there's no small plants in the field since no rain had come and no person was there to work the ground. But that's interesting, right? How are those two flip-flopped? It seems that Moses maybe have turned the kaleidoscope where we're still seeing the same creation narrative, but possibly from a more literal interpretive angle than we saw before. You guys with me? Does kind of make sense? In chapter one, the bushes and the plants come first and then humanity happened. In chapter two, the bushes and plants come second and humanity comes first. Do you see that? And is there a contradiction? Does that mean we should throw out the Bible? No, of course not. We're seeing the same story, but we're seeing it from two different angles. Chapter one of the creation narrative is really about an artistic way to show the beauty and the power and the sovereignty of God in all creation. And so chapter two is telling us a more literal way. It's God showing how personal and how intimate and how purposeful God is in creation. He's showing you two different angles, an artistic way that is not really about maybe having literal days or showing you sort of a progressive order. He's showing you the beauty of his design and that he's the creator. And so he's using poetic language all through it. And then chapter two, he's going more literal, more personal, more deep. Do you see how the Bible's not giving you a contradiction here? Because it seems like it could be with sort of what happened, did the bush come first or the person come first? And it seems like in chapter two, we're actually walking through a real life storyline because God wants to get into the personal details here. In fact, that's the very first point we're gonna unpack today. 
that you and I were created for a personal relationship with God. And so in chapter two, we see God go from this high, grand, giant creator, eternal triune God who created everything. And we begin to really zoom in on this God and his personal relationship with his magnum opus, with his image bearers, with humanity. So let me show you that, that we are designed for personal relationships starting in verse seven. Here's what it says. Then the Lord God, that's interesting. Chapter one, we hadn't seen that language before. We just saw God. Now we're introduced to the word Lord. Then the Lord God made the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now guys, listen, this is super key. This is the very first time we see the Lord, the word uh, Lord used in the Bible, right here in verse four, five, and seven. It was never once used in the entire first chapter of Genesis. But as the kaleidoscope turns in chapter two, we see it revealing something different about this amazing God. This word Lord reveals that this powerful sovereign creating God in chapter one is a personal, intimate, in the details of life God in chapter two. See, the term Lord here is the word Yahweh in Hebrew. It's the personal name of God that he gave to the Israelite people so they could know him personally. It means, Yahweh means I am, or I am who I am. Other names for God, like Adonai, meaning master, are considered to be descriptive things of God. But Yahweh is personal. It communicates relationship by which God is saying, I am always here and I am all you need. God is communicating the type of relationship that he created you for and that he created me for. God created you for a deep and personal and in the details type of relationship. And so he says, I am the Lord God. I am always here for you and I am all that you need. So let me give you my personal name. It's Yahweh. I'm here. I've always been. I will always be. And I'm all you need. Guys, do you see how amazing this is? You know, many folks even, you could argue the founding fathers of our nation, many of them were sort of deists. They believed that God created things and sort of spun the top of creation and then stepped back from his creation. He was sort of a distant God. That's not the God we see in the Bible. Genesis chapter one, we see this powerful, triune, eternal, sovereign God create everything in this beautiful way. He has spaces to fill and then he fills it with his creatures and it beautifully works together. It has order and the chaos is gone and they're serving one another and mankind is having dominion and care over all of creation. And then chapter two, this God steps into what he created. He didn't just create it and step away. He stepped into it. My friend, just a personal moment. You might feel that God is incredibly distant in your life. You may have wandered into church today and you haven't been in a while and you're maybe wanting to connect with this God and see is Christianity really real? Is Jesus really God? And as we're seeing in the first pages of the Bible, God wants you to know him. And he steps into the details of his creation then and he does the same thing now. So if you're wondering where is God in the details, you may not be able to see him, but he's there. Just like you didn't see him in creation, but you saw what he did in creation, he does the same thing in your life. 
So whether you're facing hardship or struggle, relational heartache, whatever you're going through personally that is challenging, God is in those details. He says, I am, Yahweh, I am there in your heartache. I am present in whatever's going on. I am there and I am all you need. This is incredibly personal for us to understand. Like guys, look at the multiple ways that God is personal in this passage. Verse seven, it says, God formed mankind from the dust of the ground. Formed is this really beautiful way of thinking about a, a, a potter and clay. Have you ever seen this before? Uh, Emily and I just watched the movie. I don't recommend the movie, so I'm not even gonna say the movie. We're like never gonna watch it again. But in this scene, there was a, a female artist and she was working with clay. And so she sat down at this sort of spinning device. She put the clay on top and she's, she's forming. She's up close and she's personal with it. She's face-to-face. She's intimate with what she's creating. And she spends time organizing it and moving it and shaping it. She's intimate with it. That's what God's doing. He's forming mankind from the dust of the ground. And guys, he is the same way in our life. He's up close. He's face-to-face. He's intimate. He's personal. He's intentional. He makes no mistakes. Makes no mistakes. You might not like maybe how you're made or maybe what challenges you face because of the body that you're in. But God makes no mistakes, all for a reason, purpose, and design. And he wants to reveal that to you. It's something that he can only reveal as you walk closely in a relationship with this personal God over time. We see that God formed mankind, verse 7. We see that God breathed into mankind, incredibly personal. Like, have you ever had someone breathe on you? Especially in the morning time, you're like, that's the last thing I want in a personal relationship with someone. But I will say, have you ever been close to a baby and have you ever been close to a baby when they're breathing? And some of you, like, you're like, ugh, a minute ago. And now you're like, oh, that's precious. Because some of you have known a sweet little baby breath when they're breathing. Right? Some of you, you know that uh, feeling, whether you are a parent or whether you've taken care of kids before. And it, it's intimate. It's personal. And that's what God is doing. He's up close and intimate in the breath of another God breathed life into mankind. He's giving them physical life here. He's giving them spiritual life by God breathing his own breath into Adam. And it's this breath, guys, from an everlasting God who is spirit that makes humanity a spiritual people with an everlasting soul. This is what makes humanity long for spiritual connection with something greater than themselves. And this is, guys, what separates humanity from the rest of the animal world. Our soul allows us to commune with God because he breathed life into you. And because he's spirit and because he's everlasting, you now have a soul that's everlasting. And this soul that's everlasting wants to connect with the what? An everlasting God. You were designed, breathed on, breathed life to connect with this God. We see God formed, God breathed, God planted a garden in Eden for mankind. He's serving them. He's planted a garden. Uh, verse 8b, God placed mankind in this garden for his pleasure and enjoyment. We see God is serving and caring for mankind. Verse 9 and 16, we see God gave mankind an abundance of food. There's multiple varieties, rich in flavors to enjoy. Verse 18, God sees a need that man has. He meets a need for Adam by creating him a friend, a spouse, and a companion in Eve. Then we learn later in Genesis 3 that God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, walked with them, revealing that this eternal, sovereign, powerful, giant God wanted a relationship 
of closeness so that we and he could enjoy relationship together. Guys, are you seeing that God is a personal God? He wants to be in the details of your life and for you to bring the details of your life to him. He forms, he breathes, he plants, he places, he sees, he gives, he cares, he walks. And guys, God created you for the same thing. Do you know him deeply? Do you want to be guided by him personally? Like, do you actually want to hear his voice? Do you want to be led by his presence? Are you wanting to know the purpose of your life? What your next steps are for your job, for your family? Are you wanting to know the meaning of your life? This is what you're made for, to find all those things in a personal relationship with God. And we know as Christians that that's only possible through faith in Jesus. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, provided the open gate into a relationship with this triune God. He took your sin, he gave you his righteousness, and that allows us to be in a relationship with God that you and I were made to be in. And life is better when we're together with God. You were designed this way. And this is why you have longings and, and hunger and, and aches and because you were designed to fulfill and have those things in him. Number two, we were designed for good works. Good works. Uh, verse seven says this, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Again, he formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And this man became a living being. Guys, in this verse, we see God's hands being in the dirt to create humanity. And this is so significant for us. Do you know why? It means that no work is unimportant. Genesis 1 shows us that all vocations, not just church work or spiritual work, are glorifying to God. There's like no hierarchy to work. If it's moral and it's upright and it's dealings, plain old-fashioned hard work, physical work, has been forever been given dignity by Genesis chapter 2. So do you know what that means? That means blue-collar workers that are in the room. What you do, even if it's unseen, it matters and it's significant. Stay-at-home moms, when you're up late at night, your kids are whining at you, even though kids are wonderful, whining at you or fussing at you, they're throwing up on you, and you feel unseen or uncared for, the fact that God himself put his hands in the dirt to create mankind gives your work dignity. When you're not making a giant paycheck or any paycheck, when you're cleaning up th throw up or uh, poopy diapers, whatever it is, that work is significant now. It's significant because we're seeing it modeled by God and given dignity because he touched it. College or grad students, study material that you don't feel like is practical for any part of your life. It's still a value. It's still important because all of this work matters. All work is given dignity, no matter if it's a big paycheck, a small paycheck, whether you're the CEO or whether you're the janitor, it doesn't matter. God does not value one of those works higher than the other because God has shown you he did the grandness of creation and the dirty work of making mankind. So it gives you value for whatever you do. Social worker, you know what this tells you? That even if you aren't able to help or fix or protect or care for this person that's underneath your care in your caseload, even if you can't change them, your work is still significant, just as significant 
as if you were to help turn someone around. Guys, no matter what work you do, it's valuable, it's important, seen or unseen. And you're created for good works, even if it doesn't have good results. Does that make sense? Good works, even if it doesn't have good results. We see this again in chapter 1, verse 26. God gave humanity dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the ground. Chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden to what? To work it and keep it. Guys, if you just take a moment, that's telling you that work is a good thing. Now, if any of us in the room, do you like love your work and really like enjoy your work? Anybody? A few of us, you can be like, I kind of like my work, but then it's awkward because some of the church staff didn't raise their hand and, you know, I'm just kidding. Um, But if you think about work is challenging, but God designed it to be good. In fact, God gave us work before sin even happened. So it was a part of this good ordered world. And you and I might have those moments where you had a good day at work. Have you ever like, you had a great day at work, like you finished all your tasks and you got it done. You got the help you needed from your coworkers and you did everything on your checklist. You finished that big project. Have you ever like finished the day? You're like, that was a great day. You feel energized by it. Have you ever had that? It's like one day you get in your whole life. Has anyone had that day already? You've peaked, okay? It's over for you. It's done. Some of you, maybe if you haven't been working in the job force for a long time, you maybe have like 10 or 15 minutes of your life or college that went really well for you. And like you worked hard. And I think that's a taste, a taste. That 10 minutes or that one day is a taste of what work will be like in the kingdom. We will have some sort of work, but it will be fulfilling. It will be enjoyable. It will be good. It will be meaningful. And we were made for that type of work. And I think that's why all of you and I, we get frustrated with our job and we complain about our job and we want to switch our jobs because we know inside that we were made for good works and for work to be good, right? You were made for that. It's your heart longing for that. And so what we can do in the midst of all this, we can work and we can keep knowing that God will have work for us one day that is fulfilling and enjoyable. But we can till the ground, we can push papers, we can write reports, we can wipe bottoms if you're a mom or stay-at-home dad. We can do these things for the glory of God because we're designed for good works. All work has dignity. All work has value. So what are we seeing time and time again here? We're seeing that God is giving humanity food and water and food, uh, wood and seeds and gold and stones. He's giving all these things to humanity, which are basically the building blocks to help build and advance and flourish all of the human race. God has designed us to have dominion over created resources, right? Like food, money, clothing, in order to bring one another good. God's purpose in giving us dominion over all of creation was never a position of power to serve ourselves, but it's really to serve others. God is putting us in our jobs, in the garden, in our neighborhoods, wherever we are, in order to work and keep it. We're to have dominion over everything. And that's all really about using your position in order to serve the good of others. Because we were made to work so that we could extend and magnify God's interests in everything that we do. This means we have responsibility to care for God's creation, especially his image bearers. We talked about this all last week. We're to love and to care and to protect what bears his image. We're not to harm or exploit or to lie or to hurt our our coworkers, our our family, our neighbors. 
We're to love them because they're made in the image of God. So Genesis is making a radical claim here in this passage. And it's like we saw last week, that since every person is made in the image of God, every person has immeasurable worth. And we have value and significance. And we were created to do good works and to bring good works to care for others around us. As Tim Keller would say, this is why we should care for people's souls and for social systems. We should care where people end up eternally, but we should also care where they end up on earth. Do our neighbors have warm homes? Do they have safe streets? Do they have food and a good education? We can care about both because unity is found in this creation. God created body and God created spirit. And so we should care for both as Christians. We should fight against spiritual brokenness and sin, yes, but we should also fight against physical brokenness in our city. We were created by God for good works in order to steward these created things for created people. And guys, that's what I think is what's fascinating about this is that you see God uh, creating this river. And in this river, uh, you see there, there's gold along this river and there's onyx stone by this river. And God is giving um, them seeds and he's giving them wood. He's giving them trees. And all those things are to build up humanity. And that's what you see with all of those that God planted by the river. And then there's the Tigris and there's the Euphrates and all of these different rivers and all what's found along them. God's saying, here's all the resources I'm giving you. Use all of these created resources to serve created people. And guys, I want you to, again, I asked this question last week and I'll ask you again this week. How are you using your created resources to serve and care for created people? You and I were designed for good works. And God designed you. And that's why many of you, you want to help. You want to serve. You want to support someone. If someone's struggling, you want to bring them up out of that. You were designed to. You were created this way. You were designed to get into the dirt of people's lives and in difficult circumstances and create something from it. The same thing with your creator. And so when you and I may work in a social system or we may be working with someone's soul, we're to do something good, use the resources we have. So let me ask you, how are you using, again, your time, your talents, and your treasures to bring goodness to creation? What are you doing? Is this with your time? Are you serving maybe uh, at a local nonprofit? Are you volunteering in your neighborhood? What's it look like with our church? Are you volunteering in some capacity uh, through Sunday mornings or throughout the week? How are you caring for a pocket of people in our neighborhood that may need love and care? What's it look like for you? So as we think about, guys, you're created for good works. What does that mean for your daily life? How do you operate in the way that God designed you to live? Then last thing here, number three, we were designed to flourish as we follow God's word. You're designed to flourish as we follow God's word. Now, chapter two, verse 16, 17 says this. And the Lord God commanded the man. Now, does anyone like being bossed around, commanded, told what to do? Not really any of us like to be told what to do, right? Especially if someone's telling us to do something that we don't want to do. So what we're learning here is that yes, God's creator Yes, God's personal, but God also has rules. We like the first two, right? We don't like the last one. God, you can create, you can be personal, you can love me, but don't tell me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. But we're going to see here that God designed that his rules were actually his paths for flourishing, for care, for protection. 
So God's going to give mankind certain things. So the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. God's giving them everything. You can eat all of this. I gave all of this for you. I gave you trees not only to eat, but cut them down, build some houses, keep yourself warm. You can create storage units for all the food I'm going to give you. He's giving them everything. But he says, hey guys, there's this one tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day, when you eat it or if you eat it, you will surely die. Now people have thought all from the very beginning, why did God say you can have all of this, but not that? And people have postulated for all of time, why did God give some random uh, like dietary law? It's the first odd command we see. Why did God say, just don't eat that? And there could be all kinds of reasons for why, but I think maybe the overarching reason why God said, don't eat from that tree is simply so that God could tell humanity, listen, there's nothing in creation. There's nothing in creation. Even though I gave you everything, there's nothing in creation that can ultimately satisfy you. So I'm going to put that tree up right there like a picture to remind you that everything in creation, including that tree, all of that won't satisfy you. I will. So I'm just going to put this mile marker up. I'm going to put this picture up. I'm going to put this tree up right here. And I don't want you to eat of this tree to remind you that everything is mine, that you're my creation, that I love you. And what you ultimately need is not everything that I created. It's me. Again, he's telling him, I am. I am here. I am all you need. Does that make sense? There's a lot more guys we could talk about with this, but I think that's the main thing that God is doing. Again, God commands them again in chapter one. Do we remember seeing that? God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all the earth. That's a lot of commands God is saying. Fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, have dominion. God's giving now lots of rules for them. But I think what's interesting is rather than how we think about rules, we think about rules limiting our freedom, right? Or limiting something that we want to do. But it's actually not the case when God gives it. Now, do you guys notice how verse 28 says, and God blessed them and said to them, and then he gave them rules? Guys, the blessing that God gave them in verse 28 was in fact the commands that he gave him in verse 28. Do you see that? The blessing that God gave them was the actual commands. The commands were the blessing. The commands were the path to blessing and flourishing for Adam and Eve. And guys, it's the very same today as it relates to God's word. When we trust and follow God's word, we flourish the way that God designed us to be. So God blesses us by giving us his word. It's the path for us to know how we're designed to live. Guys, it's like Starro Drive in Boston in September. Some of you guys know what I'm getting to here. Let me show you what happens. When you're a car and you drive on Starro Drive, it's fine. Because the signs say that only cars can drive on Starro. But when you try to drive a massive U-Haul on a street that says for cars only, you get this. Your U-Haul ripped off and destroyed. And guys, it happens every year. There are signs on Starro that says, this is the clearance height, no trucks, no U-Hauls, no, like, like none of this here. Cars only, doesn't matter. Does not matter. I've been here for five years and this is always 
always going to be the report. And guys, I just encourage you, like for fun, not, it's kind of sad, but maybe that happened to you and I'm, I'm not picking on you. But it's, it's almost like fun that you're like, oh, who did it this year? And you can like look on different Instagram pages and people are like are posting up in their office buildings on Starro, like eating lunch, watching to see the next U-Haul is going to run into the bridge. And the point I'm trying to show you is that the Boston, the city of Boston is trying to put signs up everywhere. This is the path you're supposed to take if you're a car. This is the path of you're trying to take if you've got a truck. And this is what happens if you don't follow the path of flourishing for your car. Guys, as silly as that analogy is, the same is true of your life. Your life is going to look like that U-Haul truck if you and I continue to walk outside of God's path of flourishing. God's blessing us by giving us a path or a place for us to live in his commands. So what God does is personal God gives you a book, an ancient but powerful book known as the Bible. 66 books shows you how he interacts, the path of how we're designed, how we are to live. And guys, we can't just trust our gut. We can't just trust what our mind wants. We can't just trust our heart. Because when we've done that, we've hurt ourselves and we've hurt others. And so God is saying, I blessed you. Here's my commands. Don't eat of this tree. Live this way. And it's not for God to limit creation from joy. It's to ensure that humanity can have joy. It's the same reason that some of you, if you have pets, why you put your pet on a leash. Not saying God put us on a leash, but what happens if you take your dog out and it runs in the street? It's going to get hit by a car. Why do you have children play in a playground with a fence because you love your child. You don't want your child to run out in the street. Why do you hold hands with them when you cross the street for their protection? Why do you lock your door at home? Why do you lock your car? Because what's precious, you put a limitation on it. You put a limitation, you put guidelines, you put a path for it because you want to protect it. You want to love it. You want to give it a design. And guys, that's what God is doing with his commands. And we're seeing that at the very beginning, this creator God who is personal wants to show you a path of flourishing. And my guys, if we're honest, if you look at that picture of Star Road Drive, that may be moments of your life where you're like, God, I don't care. You give me a limitation, but I'm gonna do what I want to. I'm gonna do with my body what I desire to. I'm gonna do with my finances whatever I wanna do with it. And the question is, do you trust God's word? is actually good for you. Like, even if you don't want to obey God's word, do you actually trust that it's good for you? And so what's your marriage look like? Are you living it out according to God's word with love and communication and sacrifice? Your finances, with your friendships, with your private time, with your computer, your phone, what are you looking at? Are we living our life in such a way that it follows God's pathway of blessing and provision and care? Because you and I were designed to flourish according to God's word. Now guys, I am not a car mechanic. And so if you ever have an issue with your car, you should like definitely like not come to me. But I had a really good friend. Uh, was it Emily? Was it like two winters ago? We had parked our car near trash uh, that was sort of not put in trash cans, but it was a bunch of bags uh, on my street. And I was like, I'll just park there and it's winter. And you know, if you're running your car throughout the day and you go and park, it's still going to be warm underneath the hood. Well, in Boston, we have these native creatures called rats that just invade everything. And so I had parked the car, got in the next day. And I was like, this smells terrible in my car. What, what is going on? It smells awful. It smells like, like rotten 
like meat and like dead something. And so I'm like, I don't know what it is. So I'm like, I clean out the car and I get car fresheners for it. And it's back the next day, but it's worse. And I'm like, this is like terrible. Like what's going on? I'm looking through everything. I'm looking underneath the car, I pop the hood. I can't see anything. I'm like, what is, what is going on? A week passes by and I'm like, I'm going to die if I get back in this car. No one will ride with me. My wife doesn't want to ride with me. It was just one of our kids at the time. She's like, I don't want to get in that car. I'm like, I got to figure out what's going on. So I start taking apart everything in my car and I'm like breaking things in my car trying to figure out what it is. But I get my friend who is a mechanic and I was like, hey man, can you just help me figure out what is dying in my car? I take my car over to the Daniel's house I park it in their driveway and I'm like, we're all just going to go through this together. And Matt and Jordan come out. My friend's trying to help me on this and he's going through the car manual. Okay, where can this smell be coming from? And he begins to take each page and he's like, okay, I'm going to unlock this. I'm going to open up this. And he goes in through the air filter and what we saw was a giant dead, like Kentucky fried chicken, chicken breast that was brought from a rat all the way up into my air filter and like left there. I'm like, A, how did you do that? That's an amazing ability for a rat. And I'm like, that's what's been smelling dead because it's dead chicken that was brought up there by a rat that just gnawed on it and maybe used the restroom in there. It was, it was terrible. It was really, really gross. But what we're seeing is that someone who knew the design of the car could take the manual and work through it and piece out all the junk that was inside of it and take out each part because it was necessary. Guys, Scripture and the Holy Spirit is the same way. Scripture is the car manual. The Holy Spirit is my mechanic friend that works through the gunk in your heart. The dead things, the sin, it pulls it out. And God is saying, this is what I've done for you. Some of you are like, that was a lot for a story. Jordan's still trying to recover from that story. You good? <laughs> You're good. Still, it's an incredibly gross story if you remember all that. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is that, guys, Scripture is similar. And then it works through the gunk of your heart and your life. The Spirit takes it and he pulls out things for you. Guys, so let me ask you again, are you in such a way living that your heart is submitted to God's word? Do you read it daily and do you heed it in your life? When you look at a command or you look at something that talks about how we should love our neighbor or how we should repent of sin, what's your first reaction? Is it like, I don't want to do it? Or like, I don't care what God's word has to say? Or do we willingly submit to it? Or further, do we even read God's word if you're a Christian? Are you reading God's word to spend time with him, to know his will, to know how we are to live out our life for your good? Because I don't want us to be like the U-Haul on Star Road Drive, just living out our own ways, going against God's commands and hurting us and harming others. We were not designed to live this way. In fact, as we're going to see next week as we close, we're going to see Adam and Eve walk outside of the path of flourishing. God said, don't eat of this tree in this garden. And Adam and Eve reject God's path of flourishing. Adam and Eve take from this tree, they enter into sin, they start harming one another. As we know the story, they have kids and their first kids kill each other. They watch mom and dad have fights. It gets into their uh, age as they grow up, they're learning this. And we see that sin begins to just go throughout humanity. And we see that if we're not following God's path of flourishing, we see harm and heartache, and hurt. And God is trying to protect us from that. But here's the beauty as we end. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Did you notice how it said in verse 9, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What about the tree of life? 
The tree of life is a foreshadowing showing us that although Adam and Eve are going to eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and sin, there's a tree of life there. A tree of life that points us to one day how Jesus would die on a tree in our place to bring us life. And we're seeing right here in Genesis chapter 2 that this tree of life is pointing us to the life we can have only through faith in Jesus. That Jesus, yes, knew that Adam and Eve would sin by disobeying God's law. But the tree of life in God's path of flourishing is found at the cross. We see it's pointing us to Jesus' crucifixion one day. This tree of life that Jesus would climb up on and be crucified, take all of your sin, take Adam and Eve's sin on himself so we could have life in him. So my friends, today, if this is your first time here, or if you're thinking, man, my life's like Starro Drive in my U-Haul. It's just a wreck. I'm not living this way. I'm not obeying God's word. And my life is in shambles and I'm, I'm hurting. The tree of life stands before you. And it's God offering you on the cross a new life where there's forgiveness and there's, there's freedom and there's flourishing found in his paths. And so today, if you're not a Christian, would you consider taking Jesus at his word, that he is life and in a relationship with him, there can be flourishing, there can be freedom in him. And if you are a Christian and you are struggling with not following his path and you're not living in light of his word, I want you to treat the, the, the tree of life still stands there for you as well. They can come and turn away from your sin. You can be forgiven by God and you can find the power to walk a new way, the way of grace. The tree of life points us that way. The scriptures are pointing us how to live. And so guys, that's part two of the image of God. And next week, we're gonna walk through a little bit more about Adam and Eve and their marriage and their relationship, how God designed marriage to work. Also singleness, we'll unpack that more next week. But guys, would you would, uh, pray with me, please.